Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. And welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. So nice to have you here. Before we get into our conversation with Brad Kalodner, a couple of ways that you can support the podcast. You can make a contribution and help us out financially by going to basicfolk.com slash donate. If you give $60 or $5 a month, you will have access to Basic Folk Backstage, where we have all this cool bonus content posted. Uh, If you cannot make a contribution right now, that's totally cool. There's other ways to support. You can sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod. Or you could just tell a friend about your favorite folk podcast, Basic Folk. Thank you if you are a contributor or on the newsletter or a social media subscriber. Uh, It's very nice to be connected. Okay, let's talk about Brad Kalodner, my work colleague. Brad is a host on Folk Alley. Uh, you can find him hosting right after me, weekdays starting at 7 o'clock Eastern. He's also an incredible banjo player and once the Baltimore Clawhammer banjoist radio host and community organizer got a banjo in his hands, it was game over. Brad had previously played the cello in the school orchestra, was like kind of like meh on that, and held a strong interest in sports. But his true passion for old-time music was realized at Meadowlark Music Camp in Maine. He signed up for the Banjo for Beginners class after his father, the renowned fiddle and hammer dulcimer player Ken Kalodner, brought him along to the camp under the condition that he was to play some kind of music that week. While Brad had grown up around traditional music through his dad's performances with his band Helicon, recordings, and music lessons at the house, he wasn't drawn to that particular style of music. Yet. Once he started on the banjo, however, he began going down YouTube rabbit holes, going out to jams, and soaking in as much as he could. Brad went to school in Ithaca, New York, where he started hosting a folk radio show that further deepened his love of old time. Once he returned home to Baltimore, he became invested in community organizing with weekly jams and music festivals. Brad's released albums with his band Charm City Junction as Ken and Brad Kalodner, and recently he's put out his debut solo record, Chimney Swifts. The album focuses on what he calls private music. This is what musicians play when they first pick up their instruments. It's familiar and evokes time and place. In our conversation, he goes into detail about what that means and how the pandemic has impacted his practice of private music. 
He also talks about his most recent project, The Bird's Flight, with Pete Sutherland and Timothy Cummings. Pete and Tim were working on Scottish songs and then decided to bring Brad in since he has an affinity towards genre mixing and is a kick-ass banjo player. As a DJ, you can hear Brad, like I mentioned, on Folk Alley, Radio Bristol for the Old Time Jam, and on Bluegrass Country Radio. You can hear him playing at the Baltimore Old Time Jam, Baltimore Square Dance, Baltimore Old Time Festival, and you can find him online teaching banjo and making everyone feel comfortable at the Slow Jam. We're going to take a listen to the title track from Brad's solo album, Chimney Swifts, and then get to our conversation with the great Brad Galadner on Basic Folk. Brad Kalodner, thanks for being on Basic Folk. Hey, Cindy Howes, what's going on? Thanks for having me on. Of course, yeah, I'm so pumped to uh, just like dive really deep into your, you know, emotional psyche and maybe shed some tears with you during this conversation. (laughs) I thought we were talking about the banjo in this. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) a lot of people cry. Um, I've shed tears over my banjo before, so yeah. I'm sure you have. Um, okay, let's get into it. So you grew up surrounded by music, thanks to your parents, especially your dad, who is a renowned hammered dulcimer player and fiddler. And you were always, like, respectful of his music. Like, you went to his shows, you listened to his records, but you, like, weren't really that interested. Is that basically true? When I was really little, I remember picking up his hammered dulcimer mallets and walking up to the dulcimer and just banging on the instrument as loud as I could. So I, from the earliest age I can remember, certainly enjoyed the sound, making sounds on the instrument, but it didn't click and turn into real music for quite a while. Uh, my, My dad tells me stories about how I used to like sit underneath the dulcimer during his lessons in the living room and I would be under the the instrument. There's a stand that holds up the dulcimer, and I would just sit there and listen to the sounds. And I certainly enjoyed, you know, all the activity in the house, the musicians coming through, the lessons in the living room. I probably got a little tired of those, and so did my sister and my mom. And that's probably why my dad eventually was banished to the garage for all of his lessons when we became <laughs> teenagers. But it was present, and it was it was kind of an the soundtrack to my childhood was his music and so for my sister and I it was just uh it was just the ambient sounds of life as a kid and it felt normal to us and it wasn't something that I thought oh that's something I want to do I, I want to pick up mm. the hammer dulcimer I will say we did learn both my sister and I learned a couple of tunes on the dulcimer and I still 
can play one of those tunes to this day. It's called North Carolina North Breakdown. North Carolina Breakdown. How did you know? Jinx. You got some Brad Kolodner trivia ready to go. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the thing that is funny that we mentioned that because I wanted to ask you a question about that, but I really had no question because the story goes that your dad put the hammers in your hands and then played the song with you. And then now you still know North Carolina Breakdown. But anyway, so if if it wasn't music, what were you and your dad bonding over when you were younger? We actually bonded over sports. Um, he is a, a, a big like sports fan and athlete. He plays soccer like three times a week. Even at the age of 67, he still gets out there and plays. Three so- times a week? Two or three times a week minimum. He plays in a league wow. that's like an over 65 league. He also plays in the like over 50 league and is able to keep up with the the young guys. And uh, so I think when I was a kid, we would bond over kicking the soccer ball around in the backyard or playing catch and, you know, maybe going to Baltimore Orioles baseball games. Uh, definitely sports was our bonding point. And, and honestly, to this day, we, we still kind of enjoy um, he's he's kind of like my only friend who is into sports as well. Um, you know, as a musician, it's not a common overlap. Um, so mm. you know, it, we it's not a huge part of my life, but it's I certainly enjoy going to the occasional ball game here in Baltimore. Uh, but it's it's definitely a, a big bonding point for us um, as as a youngster. I like that you call your dad your friend. I feel like. There was one time I was hanging out with my brother and I said to him, I was like, do you think that like mom and dad are like our friends? Like, do you think of them as friends? And he was like, what are you talking about? But you clearly do think of your dad as your friend. We spend so much time together and there's so much overlap in our lives. It's like, it's kind of amazing when I step back and look at it. Like I live in this neighborhood in in Baltimore here called Hamden, which is the same neighborhood where my dad lived as a 20 something and into his 30s and he you know picked up folk music at a later age he started when he was in his 20s I started when I was a late teen and um, certainly share a lot in common Um, I don't unfortunately have a doctorate in my back pocket he went to graduate school (laughs) and studied uh, public health uh, actually epidemiology and um, he, he didn't really do much with it after he graduated he just wanted to play the fiddle instead but yeah we we certainly are our friends and uh you know certainly one of my best friends uh, outside of our relationship as a father son and and musical pals and and co-conspirators recording albums together and touring but um to spend so much time together it's it's almost i feel necessary to have a relationship that's built on friendship as much as it is a familial bond because um the dynamic of the you know parent and child in some ways, you know, when you're 31, as I am now, it's, it's, um, I think there's obviously a value to that, but as, um, you know, business partners and also, um, just like all the time we spend together, it's, it's like, if it always felt like a father son dynamic, it might not quite have that sense of balance that you look Mm -hmm. for in a musical partner. So I think that's it's something that naturally happened. It's not like we we work on that or or practice being friends or practice being father son or anything. It's just it just ha- it's how it's naturally evolved. Okay, uh, finding the banjo. At seventeen, you attended the Meadowlark Music Camp in Maine. Just very quickly, how did you find yourself at that camp? Meadowlark, yeah, one of the most 
profound experiences of my life. Perhaps the most important week, most pivotal moment was um, going to this little camp up in Maine. My father was uh, teaching there for many years, taught hammer dulcimer. It's an adult music camp where you go and learn uh, how to play, you know, hammer dulcimer or fiddle or guitar or banjo. So kids and adults. Kids and adults, mostly adults. It's kind of like um, a a fiddle camp. You know, there's so many of these out there um, where you go and you learn um, how to play and jam and it's very social, mostly for adults. There were a few kids that that went to the camp and uh, my sister went for a bunch of years. She, She played the fiddle in the school orchestra and I, I I should say the violin in the school orchestra excuse me yes and uh and I actually played the cello so my mom played cello when I was uh, a very little kid she actually played on my father's first album back in the mid 80s um but didn't didn't play it too much when I was younger um but I inherited her cello or well she allowed me to borrow it for the school orchestra and so I I, I had some string experience and uh when I went to the camp um, it was mostly because my sister was having such a fun time at this camp playing soccer and swimming and taking fiddle lessons and guitar and singing. And mm-hmm. and so I was a little jealous of her fun time. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll give Metal Ark a try and, and go up to this camp for the whole week. How many years had she been going? Maybe four or five years. And she made oh, wow. some friends through the years. Yeah. She made right. friends through the camp and was, was really enjoying it. Um, it's at the end of summer, right before school starts. And uh, I, I, I don't remember why I decided to go this year as opposed to other times. But mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, I, I just wanted to go. And uh, I think it was my before my senior year of, of high school. So maybe there was some thought that this would be my last chance to go before I go off to college or something. But um, mm. I went to, um, went to the camp and my dad told me, if you're going to come, you have to take some classes. So you got to sign up for classes while you're there you can't just hang out and like go swim and play soccer all day you've got to really do something musical here so I I signed up for the uh, harmonica class the penny whistle class and the singing class all classes that I thought would be easy and didn't need to uh, bring a big instrument around um, after years of playing the cello Um, and Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out the penny whistle class was full so the banjo class was the next most appealing option to me I heard this great banjo player, Richie Stearns, playing a tune in the concert. He actually played a Johnny Cash song, which I knew from my classic rock love. And uh, do you remember which song? Yeah, it was it was Hurt, um, which is I guess a Nine Inch Nails cover, but it's a it's a song. Yes, that, Brad. Yes, and, and in, the, industrial rock <laughs> from the nineties, right? And uh, but Johnny Cash does a, a great version of it, and. I think Richie was kind of, it was a take on Johnny Cash's version, I think. And I, it was on banjo, Clawhammer banjo. I didn't really know what Clawhammer was at the time, but I ended up signing up for this Clawhammer class because the Penny Whistle class was full. And uh, I borrowed one of Richie's banjos, which still had like this goat fur on it. Like a lot of old time banjos have like actual mm. skin uh, heads. And so this one still had like the fur of the goat on the banjo. I was like, whoa, this is really gnarly. But it yeah. sounded really cool, and I remember learning How that metal. it was yeah, pretty metal. And uh, I guess as a seventeen-year-old at the time, I was into it, and I, I just, um, just remember that like feeling, that like physical nature of having the instrument in my hands, and like learning that very basic claw hammer stroke, and like striking down across the string, and just hearing and feeling the the vibration of the string, and the sound it made, uh, just clicked, and I knew right then that I was pretty quickly more passionate about it and just learning the basics of 
claw hammer banjo than I was about cello for all of those years. So sorry, wow. mom and dad, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> uh, supported my cello, uh, you know, interest, but uh, the banjo really took hold. Up to that point, what had been your relationship to the banjo? And can you go a little bit more in deeper into, you know, what that connection felt like? It sounds like almost immediately you felt uh you just felt connected to this instrument as soon as you got it in your hands. The like I said, the way it felt was cool. I think the the way that I was able to quickly translate some of those tunes that I heard when I was a kid. So I had all these melodies floating around in my head um, from all those years of listening to my father's records. He played in this band called Helicon, which played music from all over the world. And I basically have all of those albums memorized from cover to cover um, and, you know, know what track is coming next, know the arrangements of them. I wouldn't be able to articulate, you know, what is going on necessarily, but I could at least hum the melodies. And I hummed all the time as a kid. Um, And in fact, when I was in kindergarten, my parents told me that one of the teachers had to take a break from teaching because they couldn't handle all the humming I was doing. (laughs) Um, which I don't remember, but that's at least that's the story that my parents tell me, but, uh, definitely, you know, was, was, um, reciting, you know, all of these tunes that my father played for so many years. And, and when I finally had a tool to kind of unleash those melodies, the banjo clicked. And I think it, I think it had to do with the fact that the instrument itself and the band claw hammer banjo specifically is such a dynamic way of playing an instrument it's so self-contained as a as a as like a sonic landscape you can have the rhythm you know the percussion the percussion of your hand hitting the head and tapping lightly and the sound of a strum you know chords and then also individual melody notes and then this rhythm that's syncopated and groovy and driving but also can be really mellow and pretty there's just so much versatility in that style and i i i, I think i I latched onto that pretty quickly, the idea that I could just sit with the banjo playing claw hammer for hours on end, and it was very satisfying. I didn't necessarily need to be playing with other people, or I didn't need to be in an orchestra, and there was there was just like a, a yeah, like a, a containment within the experience of playing banjo by myself that, that really uh, kept mm. me hooked and keeps me hooked to this day. I still pick up my banjo in a, a moment of quiet at, at home, and I just start playing. You don't have a plan in mind sometimes. Just uh, it's such a fun instrument to. And I don't want to mm-hmm. say the like, noodling feels a little too um, too simple. It's like it's certainly I pick up my banjo and will noodle, but it's it. There's so much more. There's so much more texture within that sound that it, it's it feels mm-hmm. more captivating than simply just noodling. You you're like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. You're the one man band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that's that's like. A, one of the most satisfying parts of playing claw hammer banjo is that it, and that's like, I think what attracts a lot of people to the instrument is that it is such a unique sound and brings together so many different textures. When you got home from camp, you asked your parents to find you a banjo, and your dad had never, like, other than made you sign up for some music classes at this camp you wanted to go to, had never, like, pressured you to play. However, that must have been a very exciting time for him. So what was his reaction like, and how did it change your relationship? I think initially they were—both of my parents were excited that I had a 
an interest in in this music uh, because they they uh, I think like any parent is excited when their kid gets really inspired by something, um, especially something that is generally good, um, like playing music. And you know, the banjo was something that I showed an interest in, and and I think they've always been so um, generous in their sort of flexibility and willingness to you know just let both my sister and I go down paths that we are exploring and you know, not get in the way or put up big barriers. Um, you know, super fortunate to have them as parents as, uh, you know, so many opportunities, um, uh, that they, um, were willing to, to give us. And so anyway, I, when I showed the interest in the banjo, I'm sure my dad was excited. Um, it took no time at all in his music world and network to find an instrument, um, that it wasn't. You're a- talking about like an hour. Yeah, probably within a day, he he had a friend that that could lend him a banjo. <laughs> that, had, has several options. Yeah, you know, well, it wasn't like a, a great instrument, but it worked. Um, if it's out there listening right now, I apologize for disparaging you. <laughs> but it is the banjo itself was was fine. It was it was an old instrument that you know could stay in tune, and I, I could I could play. You know, I could learn the basics on it, but it wasn't anything I was going to grow into. So yeah, it was just a loner instrument, and. Um, I, I played it for a few months before finally upgrading to like a, a real banjo that would, would stay in tune a little better and, and sounded a little richer, but it was, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how my, my parents told me later, many years later that they did have a conversation one night, um, where they, they sort of were acknowledging that I was really into it. I was passionate and they just said, I think he's going to be really into this banjo thing like he's really into it (laughs) and I don't think they knew where it was going um but I I think they both had a little sense that I was really passionate about it early on um what was the other part of your question Hmm. how did it change my relationship with my father yeah yeah it added a, a new certainly added a new way of connecting we always connected well and had a nice close bond you know through childhood but I think uh playing music together was a new way of communicating that we hadn't touched in or tapped into before. So being able to actually play music together, I felt like I was almost getting a little bit of a window into his life and his most, um, yeah, like the most important part of his, well, one of the most important parts of his life playing music. It's, it's such an interesting thing when you're, you know, you you communicate with people musically, it's a whole nother, I, I don't want to say like it's a, a higher level of communicating. It's just another way that you can connect with somebody. And I, I, I don't think I really felt that deeply uh, about that connection until maybe a couple of years into playing. Cause I think when you're just starting out, you're just trying to hang on, you're just trying to stay with the beat and, you know, play uh, something that resembles music with each other. Um, so it wasn't until a few years in when we recorded our first album, I think that was in 2011, I guess, three or four years into my banjo journey when it finally started to feel like we were actually making music together um, and mm. creating something new. Issa Burke was talking about this um, in her episode of Basic Folk. So her parents are musicians and um, they were also like really into going to main fiddle camp, but she didn't really truly get into this style of music until she connected with people her own age playing that style of music, which was important to you as well. Why do you think that finding people your own age playing traditional music was an important factor in like sealing the deal with you and your instrument? Hmm. I think with with many passions, sharing them with peers that you connect with 
outside of just that singular activity is really what cements it for me. People who are going through a similar stage of life, discovering who they are, um, you know, at the same time, you know, having people who are at the time, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, really just learning how to be an adult for the first time uh, or, or really learning how to be independent and also discovering a, a passion and a joy for an instrument. I think those two, like, yeah, having peers with you along the way, um, it just sort of adds new layers to your connection with the instrument and the music. So um, I think also there is maybe an element of rebellion too that's present in that, you know, having something that is distinct from my my parents and what my father does and was doing then, you know, having sort of making the music my own um, and having not just like being a carbon copy of my father or his music or anything. And that's definitely a theme that comes up in, in old time and traditional music in particular is like, how do you create a, a sort of your own sound or a, 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 a not just like a replication or a, a reproduction of, of many years of, of, of this music? Cause it is music that is recycled and then sort of transforms through time. But um, that's just an, that's another topic as well. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll get into later, but I think, uh, yeah, going to specifically a couple of festivals, um, one in particular really cemented it, and it's the the Clifftop Festival, which is in West Virginia, the Appalachian String Band Festival. And I think a lot of old-time musicians reference this festival as the place where they kind of have their moments of sort of joy and elation in this music, being able to share it with so many incredible musicians from all around the country and the world. And doing so in an environment where you're just, it's just so saturated with music. And that's the focus of the week is to just sit around and play tunes all day and night. It's so cool. And and uh, it's it's one that I, I encourage all old time bluegrass roots musicians even if you even if you're just sort of borderline interested in old time music it's it's worth going just to mm. soak it in and um what time of year is that at it's in early august yeah it's always the first weekend of august and i've gone for um the past 10 years just you know 2020 being skipped and 2021 sadly didn't happen either but i'll be there in 2022 um, so long as it happens, and uh, it is uh, it is definitely the place where I went as a I think I was twenty when I went for the first time, and that's when I really and I was kind of just on my own there. You know, I didn't have my mm-hmm. my dad, I didn't have any other musical friends, maybe a couple people I knew, but I just wandered around with my banjo mm. and um, you know connected with people who were older than me, which is it doesn't necessarily make a huge difference. Um, you know, who I'm playing with, you know, the age isn't, isn't a critical factor, but in terms of my, some of my lifetime friends that I've made at that festival, including a bandmate who I play with now and many other friends having a festival or an experience musically that is my own sort of independent from my initial uh, upbringing in the music was, was a critical Mm. turning point. Uh, You said, I'm grateful for those early experiences with musicians who are far better than me. You learn a lot being thrown into the fire. What were those moments of jamming with musicians who were more seasoned than you? What were those moments like? And how have those experiences changed since you have become more experienced, Mm. more seasoned? Oh, there's so many, so many parts to that. That's a great question. I think when I first picked up music and would sit in jams with other musicians who are stronger than me, I'd feel 
incredibly intimidated like you do. It's just mm-hmm. really intimidating to be around people who are far better. But I think the, the I think the overall vibe of old time music sp- specifically, it's so communal. It's it's sort of meant to be shared and passed along. And I, I, my father has always been great about um, keeping jams open and not turning a shoulder to anybody, always welcoming in players of all skill levels. And um, in fact, later today, um, we have an old time jam here in Baltimore that's an open jam. And we start with a slow jam for the first hour, which is meant for anybody who wants to jump in with their instrument, regardless of skill level, or even if it's not a traditional old time instrument, you know, we have clarinets and uh, we've had musical saws. There are harmonicas and, uh, you know, horns, all kinds of interesting instruments pop up at our jam. But that's kind of the finish line there. Um, the initial part of the question being um, the the idea that, like, when I'm around other musicians who are stronger, it's, um, you know, you learn a lot, of course, being around people who are just so confident in their abilities and, and can express so freely on their instruments. Um, and I'm I'm always interested in, in like, the, the listening component of playing music. You know, when I sit down with my instrument and play with other people... I actually probably spend more time listening to who I'm playing with than I do to myself. Um, I, I usually tell my students and and bandmates, you know, that I'm probably 70 to 80 percent listening to the other people and 20 or 30 percent listening to what I'm doing. And I think that's mm-hmm. an essential part of old time music. You know, string band music in particular is so shared. And um, of course, it's different when you're playing solo. But whenever you're in a, a context with other musicians, it's so much richer when you listen closely to what other people are doing and sort of echoing what they may be playing and, and sort of my, my favorite experiences with, with a band uh, is, is when you do have that group dynamic where you are really conversing with each other and listening very closely at all times to one another. Um, and uh, I think that's probably what I value most in those settings where I am with other musicians who are stronger is really listening to what they're doing and and then trying to see how that informs what my next moves might be in the jam or Mm. on stage. Uh, I love it. Um, Okay, I want to talk about the troublemakers. I was reading something you wrote about crooked tunes where you say many fiddle tunes have an irregular number of beats (laughs) in one or more alt-split parts. These are called crooked tunes and are frequently jam busters, and they, they can be hard to follow when trying to pick them up on the fly. What happens when you're in a jam and something like that happens that breaks up the jam? Have you gotten better at smoothing things over with jam busters, or are you a jam buster? <laughs> uh, very rarely do I try to sabotage a jam with a, a four-part <laughs> crooked tune that changes keys halfway through. Um, but yeah, tune selection is, is really important when you're trying to um, be welcoming and inviting to others in a jam of, of different skill levels. Uh, yeah, I, you know, occasionally if, if we ask somebody else to lead a tune or start a tune and, and it's really challenging, you know, I think you, in the moment you, we all try our best to just follow along and figure it out. Um, but you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of a weird balance actually in, in like a leading a jam when, when somebody proposes a tune, like you want to go along with whatever tune they pick, but you also want to make sure that it kind of is like in the realm of something that everybody will probably be able to enjoy. So it's a tricky balance, like being really diplomatic about, I think that tune might be, might be a little too challenging or esoteric or something. It's a, a lot of dynamics and jams like that when you're trying to sort of 
uh, balance out the desires of everyone there. Um, but I think most people who play in, in communal social settings like that kind of understand that you want to play music that is accessible for, for the group. And you don't want it to feel like a performance. Like here's this really random tune that nobody plays that I'm going to just play by myself and you're all going to listen like that. That's something we, mm-hmm. we try to, we try to stifle um, <laughs> just because it makes everyone feel a little uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, you know, it, you kind of always are feeling out this, the vibe of the jam and, and what kind of makes sense for a group. Like you want to challenge mm-hmm. people, but you also want to make sure that it's, it's accessible. So we, we, you know, we try to keep the tunes pretty simple and then maybe throw in a tough tune every now and then just to, to, yeah. to stretch it a little. Can you talk about the responsibility that comes with passing down this tradition in a social or loose or informal setting? In a, a setting like a jam where you are, um, it's a social environment, that's quite different than I think being on stage because I think when you're on stage, there's even more responsibility as a performer, especially music that has such a complicated history you have to be really honest about the music and where it comes from and framing everything in a way that's thoughtful um i think when you're in a jam setting your goal isn't necessarily to educate or to inform while that is a, a through line and certainly present i think the idea of a of a jam or a social setting is to sort of enable you know like everybody's having a, a good time but with that there is a responsibility to step in I think when a tune is presented that maybe has a, um, you know, like a, a complicated story or a challenging title or there's, you know, something in the song lyrics or the title that is, um, you know, potentially offensive, you know, you do. I think it is important, especially now to just maybe just bring it up right then and, and mm. just tell them, like, I think I'd rather not play that one. Um, it doesn't feel appropriate or there's a whole other, you know, we can have a whole other conversation about that. But um, it is a tricky balance because you do, I think as a jam leader, you do have to take some initiative and not necessarily just let things slip by. Um, it may be uncomfortable, but I think it is important to think about, you know, just all parties involved in the situation and like the responsibilities you have as a leader in a community um, for passing on tunes that, you know, should be retired or or tunes that deserve a little bit more attention or respect. So there is this reckoning going on in folk and Americana music right now to be more inclusive when it comes to particularly country music, um, including black people, women, queer people, trans people. In in your town of Baltimore, you you run these weekly and bi monthly jams. Like, how do you see your role as being like somebody who is like running a jam? You're in a way a kind of a gatekeeper in terms of like encouraging different types of people to pick up this the, these instruments and pick up this type of music in those jams. So like, where are you in that in terms of like trying to get people to come to the jams who like don't necessarily look like you or don't necessarily you know, that are that are different from like a, a cis white male? I think there are many facets to the ways that you organize an event that are so much deeper than just simply marketing or advertising it as, you know, all are welcome or, you know, it's it's so much denser and more nuanced. And I think through the various organizing endeavors I have, whether it's the jam or the, I run a square dance every month and, and I'm actually... Um, 
the biggest endeavors is probably the Baltimore Old Time Music Festival. And I think each of these events kind of build off of one another. And I think when I first started the jam, that was the sort of the first event that I took on as an organizer and sort of a community leader. The goal initially was to have an outlet for people to play old time music and to get together and, and gather. Um, but that's really just, that was really just the start and, you know, the work of being more inclusive and welcoming and inspiring other people who don't necessarily look like me, um, or think like me, um, you know, that's, that's like a multi-year sort of lifetime project and something that I mm-hmm. think about on a very, like, it, it's, it's always part of the way that I, it's not like the thing that I'm thinking about with all of these events, but it is something that's, it's, it's a, it's a, like a, a critical component of it that I think I would be, um, you know, whether it's through like the radio show or the, uh, that the radio shows that I host always being conscious of how does, you know, I mean, there are certain concrete things. I'm, I'm being sort of ambiguous here, like with regards to programming a festival, you know, like that, there, there are different ways that you can be welcoming and inclusive and inviting and I think, you know, th- there are certain priorities that I have in that regard. Like I, I it's sort of my view that as a festival organizer and a, a gatekeeper, um, who you hire, you know, and who you have on the bill and where they're on the bill and who you actually help to present as leaders in the community, um, that feels like one of the most impactful things I do uh, or try to do. Um, is, you know, who is, who do I play on my show? You know, what messages are being shared on radio programs? You know, how is it all balanced out? You know, different, differing views and opinions and things. And then through the festival, who, who's on the bill, who's hired, you know, who's, who's, a, you know, paid to be there and what stories are they telling? Um, you know, what part of town is the venue in, you know, at what time of day is it, you know, like what day of the week, like, all of these things impact, you know, who comes and, you know, it's important to me in Baltimore, which is such a, it's such an interesting city. You know, there are so many issues here. Um, there are so many people who dig their heels in and, and really want this place to work. And, you know, I've lived here for 31 years, my whole life. And, you know, my experience here is quite different than a lot of other people who live here for sure. Um, but I'm very sort of staunch in my view that like, I want every event that I organize to be in the city and not necessarily in a place that always feels like it's, you know, quote, like safe or, you know, all these loaded terms, you know, of like where we have, Mm -hmm. like, it's so important to me that, um, we have our events like in the city, like not exporting them to parts of the the place where you maybe more would expect like an old time jam to happen. Like our, our first old time jam was hosted on, um, it's called North Avenue. It's right in the middle of Baltimore city. And it's an area, a part of town that is, um, it doesn't necessarily immediately pop to mind in this sort of like, it's it's a very um, sort of busy part of town with like, there's a bunch of cars zooming by and buses. And it's like, it definitely has like a, a it's like right in the heart of town. And it's, mm-hmm. we, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, it the venue closed. But we ho- hosted our jam there for years. And, and we always had these comments from people that would just, you know, like, oh, I don't feel safe. I don't like coming there. But that like almost made me want to have the jam there even more. It's like, this is 
Like, I want this jam to be in a place where people will wander in off the street who maybe don't know that this music exists or what what mm-hmm. is old time music. You know, what is bluegrass music? And so, you know, thinking about the location of a jam and, you know, where, where it is in town also impacts, you know, who may come in. So just trying to think of like all the many decisions you make about an event or about the tune selection or, you know, who's hired for an event or who you present on the radio. Like, I, I feel an intense uh, obligation and responsibility to be conscious of that at all times in my organizing efforts and leading efforts, because it's not only the right thing to do, it's just like, it's just better. Like things are better when it's, when there are more and there's more variety and diverse opinions and views. And it's just, it gets so tedious and boring when it's just the same old thing over and over again. You went to Ithaca College for television, radio. Uh, you first started DJing folk radio shows. Originally, you maybe thought you were going to be a sports broadcaster. Jokes on you. Uh, <laughs> you are the opposite of that. Um, so, you also conduct a lot of interviews. I think mainly on the Brad Kalodner show on Bluegrass Country Radio, where you have tons archived. How do you feel about conducting interviews and how does your experience of being on the other end of them help your approach? Mm, yeah, I, I think that doing interviews is probably my favorite part of, uh, of being a, a radio personality because it allows me sort of a window into the, the life and, and approach of artists that I admire. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about bluegrass and roots and old time music, how accessible the artists are, being able to have these and, and, and I, I think you probably feel this too as a, as a podcast host and a radio DJ, having access to some of your musical heroes is just like mm. such an honor and privilege. And, and it's like, it's so inspiring to be able to directly ask. And sometimes it's not inspiring. <laughs> and sometimes it's really disappointing. You're like, man, that, yeah. that was a drag. Like Damn. they were so much more, they were so, so much more arrogant or boring than I was expecting yeah. them to be. But I'd say more often than not, I, I, at least maybe my experience sure. is different here, but I, I generally am, am um, it is really exciting and to be able to chat and, and ask questions, like just it's so open. I love being able to have just like hit record and then just see where it goes. Um, I think interviewing is like one of the hardest parts of, of the, the job as a radio host, um, just because... Yeah you have to be on and you have to be focused, but you also have to sort of sometimes hide your excitement, but not in a way that like me makes you disingenuous, but like you have to be professional about it and smooth. Um, but I think, uh, it's also really, um, yeah, it's just, I think, you know, it certainly informs the way I answer uh, questions just to a certain degree. It's hard to turn off my radio sort of, uh, way of speaking when I'm on the microphone. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of get that. Like, you are so, so just to give you um, an observation from someone who is also, like, does what you do, like, you are so smooth and you do the thing that I do, but you do it much better where you can, like, just continue, you can continue the thread of what you're saying so well. Mm. Like, it's Mm. masterful. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's like you make it very easy to interview you, but also sometimes your answers are answering like 10 of my questions, mm, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
uh, thank you or I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I'd give you some criticism and some positive feedback. Well, no, thank just kidding. you. It's thank not you. criticism at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, and I don't know how you feel about like uh, interviews in terms of like being, I always get nervous even like doing this interview, like I'm not nervous right now, but like in the preparation of it, I'm always thinking like, oh, I'm going to be a disappointment or this is not going to be as good. You know, like I always kind of like forget that I actually know what I'm doing and it's going to be fine. But I don't know. How do you feel about that when it comes to nerves? It's funny you mentioned that because it, there's so few, there's like so few people out. So like the number of people who do this kind of thing where you're interviewing artists and especially in the Roots Americana space, there's there's only a handful. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about this because I have the same reaction in preparation for interview i get so nervous i get i like i'm writing my notes down thinking about questions scanning through other interviews they've done and sort of plotting out how i want it to go in some vague sense um that's always the most nerve-wracking part of it in preparation because you just don't really know how they're going to be as an interviewee and um Mm -hmm. you know radio a mentor of mine once told me that the key to a good interview is a good interviewee. And so a lot of it does hinge on who you're talking to. But yeah, once the, once the, the record button is hit and you, you start, it's, it's, uh, it does feel much easier and smoother than it you usually expect it to be. But it, it, in preparation, it is, uh, I do feel pretty anxious about what the right questions are, how they're going to react to certain questions, making sure that I ask something that doesn't feel just like they're repeating it over and over again in an interview um, is there are so many predictable questions that can come up when you're talking to somebody um, and just being really careful about um, asking questions that will maybe lead to your interviewee answering hmm. it in a new way or, or something that they haven't thought about before. Because um, it is easy, I think, for an artist, especially one who does a lot of interviews, to just sort of regurgitate the same answers. You know, how'd you start playing? Sure. Or, what was the important pivot point for you or, you know, what, tell me about your new album, you know, or these like broad questions that they just kind of prepare for. And I think the best interview, best interviewers and um, best questions kind of steer pretty far away from those kind of questions, mm, yeah. which you do a great job of on this podcast, by the way. Oh, gee, thanks, Brad. <laughs> um, I want to hear, so I've, I, in looking stuff up about you, um, your love of the groove has come up um, a lot of times, and I think with your dad, uh, because he is on—he's basically on percussion the whole time on his dulcimer, not, except when he's on his fiddle. Um, but can you talk about what you like about the groove in old-time music and what the groove feels like specifically when you and your dad play together? Well, I mentioned this earlier, the idea of living in the moment and being present. And I know it's such a broad sort of platitude, I guess, but it, it is so critical to why I play music and, and being able to lock in with somebody else. Um, and, and solo as well, you can, you can get into a really deep groove by yourself. I, I'm sort of notorious for bobbling my head a lot when I play. And, uh, in fact, I, my parents even got me for my birthday a few years ago, a bobblehead that looks just like me and you can find it on (laughs) Instagram, hashtag Brad Bobble. It's ridiculous. I've gone way overboard with it. Um, it's scary how similar it looks, but, um, but that place of being sort of like, it's almost like you're losing control, but in a way that you are fully in control of what you're doing, but your mind is sort of 
is so present in the music and in the groove that you have lost control of the rest of the world. Um, and that's, that's, mm-hmm. I think, one of the most sort of euphoric experiences you can have when playing old time music in particular is so built around the groove. It is a style of music that, you know, evolved with dance music and, it, you know, as an accompaniment to dance and, and being with dance. And, and so you are really dancing internally and I suppose externally mm-hmm. with your head or your feet or your body and, and it's always, I love watching musicians, you know, and the way that their body moves when they're playing. Um, it's just, everybody has their own unique movements and it's, uh, it's so interesting to watch. Um, you know, if you just kind of imagine going to a concert and just, you know, putting your hands over your ears for a few moments, I, I always enjoy doing that and just trying to watch the musicians and how they're reacting. You, you see kind of how, what they're feeling in a way when you kind of put the, the actual auditory side of, of it away for a moment. But anyway, it's, um, I think the, the groove component is just, uh, it's, I think what attracts me to specific musicians, you know, people I play with, like my dad has such a great sense of rhythm and is so thoughtful in the way he listens, um, that it's easy to lock in with my dad, you know, as much as anybody else I play with. Um, but I'm always attracted to playing with people who are listening in such a way that they are, they kind of have the same mission, which is to lock in rhythmically and um, share share the groove and not dominate. And I think that's why I'm attracted to old time as opposed to other styles of music that might be more performative. Um, I certainly enjoy bluegrass and, you know, I, I, I love playing with vocalists. I sing as well. Um, but I think having a, an ensemble setting where you do kind of share the groove together um, that's that's where I'm happiest. Chimney Swift says your debut solo album. It came out in September, and it focuses on what you call private music. And in the press release, it says this is what musicians play when they first pick up their instruments. It's familiar and evokes a time and place. Now, this is an album that you worked on during the pandemic, where I'm sure you were seeking out a lot of comfort and wondering if that's what you mean by private music, but can you expand on that a bit? I actually was conducting an interview once with uh, this incredible banjo player, Danny Barnes, and he um, mentioned this in an interview, and it always stuck with me, this idea of recording or presenting your private music, the music that you play before a show when you're just warming up or when you just pick up your instrument for the first time in the day and you just are you know, whatever comes to mind, it's usually some of the first music that you ever learned. Some of the simplest tunes in your repertoire are the ones that you kind of play first and you pick up an instrument. And that concept of private music really stuck with me because in this interview that I did years ago with with Danny, uh, he was um, on the show to promote a new album of music that he grew up listening to, um, this great banjo player, Don Stover. He did an album of his music or inspired by his music. And Danny is like a very, um, you know, eclectic um, sort of progressive banjo player who plays all kinds of stuff that is well outside the boundaries of sort of straight ahead bluegrass. And so this album was much more in the vein of of his earliest influences, more, um, you know, sort of straight ahead bluegrass. And so anyway, um, I was always attracted to that idea of, you know, what music do I play when I first pick up my instrument and that just feels so at home and comfortable. Um, and I think that that's sort of what sparked the idea for the album. I think over time as I recorded it and compiled material and thought about who I wanted to include on the album, it, it it's it spread out from there. There are a number of tunes on there that are certainly 
um, you know, tunes that I've been playing for many years. There's a lot of new material as well, some original tunes and and some arrangements of of material that is outside the boundaries of you know what I would consider my private music, but it certainly inspired the the concept of the album. I was just out on a trip in Utah with my sister amidst the pandemic. Um, we just met up in the middle of the country basically to just hang out for a month. Um, and we, uh, I, every, you know, for a number of the nights we were out there, as the sun would set, I would go out to this little bench by a pond where we were staying and I would just bring my banjo and just go out there by myself and uh, play tunes for an hour or two each night um, until it was too cold. And I'm um, just sitting there playing really, I didn't have a plan in mind. I wasn't really trying to practice necessarily. I just went out there just to play what came to mind. And, um, that was really, that was the moment where I thought, oh, I, I should really record an album of, of this music that just, that I just play when I'm sitting around with my instrument and don't mm-hmm. really have a plan or a, an arrangement in mind or a concert to practice for or a recording coming up, but just music that I just want to play to, to fill my evening with. And then you just released a new project called The Bird's Flight with Peter Sutherland and Timothy Cummings and Pete and Tim. It sounds like the story, it sounds like they were working on some Scottish songs and they're like, we need a kick-ass banjo player who loves to (laughs) mix genres. Uh, And then they called you up. How do you feel your talents and musical attributes added to that project? And then how did that project impact your playing? Don't imagine you've played very often with bagpipes, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I have not played with bagpipes very much. Pete and I go back many years. We actually have taught together at a festival up in New York years ago and had a chance to play a handful of tunes together at this camp, um, but didn't really play formally outside of that. And so when they were looking for another piece to their kind of old time Scottish fusion idea, um, you know, converting Scottish piping tunes to old time melodies. And they uh, called me up and um, because I think probably because of my interest in Irish music, I don't play a lot of Scottish music specifically. And and certainly Irish and Scottish music have a different vibe. Um, Mm. And so I play Irish music in Charm City Junction. Um, We have a great button accordion player, Sean McComiskey, who I um, play a lot with and and have certainly worked up a number of Irish tunes on Clawhammer. Um, And they they were I think they were specifically looking for someone who could have that old time aesthetic, but was interested in, in genres that were related to old time, like Irish and Scottish music. But it, it yeah, it, in, in retrospect, it, it made a lot of sense. Um, that combination was really interesting. It's a challenging to play with the pipes. They're so loud. They're just so, they're so <laughs> <Yeah>. powerful. <laughs> and it's as a Clawhammer player, I, I don't have like the loudest instrument. Um, typically Clawhammer is actually on the quieter side of things. It's you know, I'm not using mm-hmm. picks. I just use my nails. So it is a lighter sound. And so it was definitely an interesting challenge, like figuring out how to fit in without overplaying. Um, you know, of course, being in the recording studio, you can just like turn up the volume. So it's a little easier to hear. And I will say, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, Tim, if you're listening, but it was really nice to be in the studio <laughs> where I could turn the banjo up just a little bit. Uh, it was really, it was a really oh, nice yeah. way to be able to actually like hear what's going on. But anyway, um, it, it, yeah, it was certainly a, a nice challenge because the m- music, it feels so familiar because Scottish music is certainly one of the many roots of old time music. And it, it feels from, it felt familiar, but it also, it was like so familiar that it made it hard to not 
um, just instantly kind of blur over some of those nuances of of Scottish material. So it was it was an interesting challenge to try to actually play what I was hearing as opposed to what I thought I was hearing. And I like to say that mm. a lot with my students is focusing on like what is actually happening. Um, in what you're listening to um, instead of just what you think is happening. And it's just an extra step of thinking about the nuances, the feel, the groove of Scottish music and playing with pipes. I mean, that's good advice for life. Totally, yeah. (laughs) Facts, not feelings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, Brad, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Rusted Root, Send Me On My Way. No way! Yep. That's great. Um, what is your karaoke song? Rusted Root, send me on my way. <laughs> <laughs> karaoke song? Usually the one that gets everybody going is uh, Journey, um, Don't Stop Believing." <laughs> Even though I can never do it. Like, I get halfway through and I'm just like, why did I pick this song? I can't sing uh, that crazy. I would love to see that. <laughs> Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Dirty iced chai. Wow. Uh, first celebrity crush? Britney Spears. <laughs> Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Richie Stearns. First album you bought with your own money? Jim Croce, Greatest Hits. What was your first concert that was not your dad's concert? Uh, Bruce Springsteen. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. <laughs> that was hard for you. <laughs> I just I just haven't been into either of them. Oh, all right. I know I just lost um, a million fans, but I just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they fell off. That implies I have or- a million fans. I don't have a million fans. <laughs> <laughs> Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering? Magic. That one you didn't have a hard time with. Mostly because I was into Pokemon and there's like oh. a closer connection to Magic. And I actually just sold all of my Pokemon cards. So it's just like... I know it's different than magic, but was it's... Was it a good investment? You know, it was surprising how much people are willing to pay for Pokemon cards in... Well, it was 2020 when I sold them. So yeah. I really have to probably thank my parents because they probably bought a number of those cards when I was like eight years old. So I probably should wow. just send them the money. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I feel like I could do a cheesy answer and say Clifftop because that's the most beautiful <laughs> Sonic landscape I've ever been around but the most beautiful place I've ever visited probably the uh, Milford Sound in South Island of New Zealand oh wow that's nice we've had New Zealand as an answer before I love a specific place though that's great if anybody is listening who's been there they'll probably agree yeah great Brad Kalodner thank you so much it's been wonderful to have you on and congrats on the brand new project Cindy Howes, thank you for having me on your program. This has been a ton of fun. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. We will see you next time. Mm, Bye. Bye.